Uh, our scripture reading today is Isaiah 57, verses 14 through 21. Our scripture reader is Sarah Payette. And if, in honor of God's word, please stand. Listen as I read. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I had made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry, but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners. Create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. This is the word of the Lord. As I said, we're in the third week of this, and Advent means coming or arrival. And we uh, often are working during this season to put ourselves in the seat of, of, of waiting. Uh, there's a helpful way in which you could say, man, what would it be like to be an Israelite 2,000 years ago? With all of the promises that are recorded in the Old Testament, all of those promises of, of a Messiah and still no Messiah, what would it be like to, uh, to, to be waiting and waiting and waiting? And we kind of put ourselves in their shoes. And then there's another sense in which we remind ourselves that we are waiting. That in the year 2021, if you're, if you're, if you're a Christian, uh, you've put your hope in this, this, this good news about Jesus. And the, the good news about Jesus is not just that he came as a baby lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and rose again. That's incredible news. But the story keeps going. And what we've put our hope in is the fact that this Jesus, this Messiah, is actually coming back a second time. And he's going to come back and make the world right. And so for the last 2,000 years, the, the, the people of God have been, have been waiting again. Uh, the, the, the Israelites waited and waited and waited for the Messiah to come the first time. And now here we are waiting for him to come a second time. Uh, this year for our Advent series, we're considering the, the, what you could, would call the historic themes of Advent. And with the order that we've used this year is love, joy. Today we'll look at peace. Uh, next week, hope. And then the Sunday after Christmas, we'll consider the subject of, of faith. And so today, uh, we're going to turn to Isaiah uh, for the third week in a row. Uh, you heard our passage read a, a few minutes ago, and that came from chapter 57. Um, I, I walked us through this last week, and so if you were here, this will be a little bit of a review. Um, but Isaiah is a really large book, and it spans a whole bunch of years. And so we actually get to see Isaiah prophesying uh, to the people of, of, of Judah the, 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 uh, in, in kind of three phases. And uh, the, the, a helpful way to break it up would be this way. Uh, Isaiah chapter 1 through 39, we see God's rebellious people being warned. Uh, this is up like 100 years before Jer Jeremiah begins his ministry. And this section of Isaiah is packed full of counsel and guidance to God's people in light of where they're headed. It's not a train wreck yet. 
It, it, things are not all good at, in Israel, but it's not a train wreck yet. And he is warning uh, the people of God. Isaiah 40 through 55, uh, we see God's defeated people being comforted. And so as Isaiah is prophesying, he looks forward and he says, like, here's, here's the prophecy. Like, it doesn't, it, you're not going to turn, and there's going to be consequences for that, and you're going to end up being a defeated people in exile. And, and in those chapters, there's a, an effort to, to give comfort to the people of God. Uh, prophecy, it's, it's regarding what's coming next, but it's not really good news. It, it's, uh, it's going to be them... Uh, uh, experiencing the fruit of their decisions, and uh, it's going to be difficult. And Isaiah offers some comfort. And then in, verses, uh, in chapters 56 through 66, we see God's true people uh, being prepared for his promised salvation. And so he even reaches beyond the exile, beyond the down season, and he says uh, the news is going to get better again. Uh, God is going to keep his promises. Uh, maybe uh, I said this last week, but the name Isaiah uh, means Jehovah is salvation. That's what his name means. And so here he is prophesying to the nation. It's like, what's, what's your name mean? Well, your, my name means Jehovah is salvation. Uh, quite, quite the name for the message that he was given to, uh, to preach and to declare uh, to, the, to the, the people of Israel. So uh, our passage is in, is in chapter 57, which as you can see is in that third and final section of, of this, uh, this, large, this large book. And what you see if you get to that chapter is in the first few verses of Isaiah 57, you see some counsel that is being given to those who are not worshiping God. And so if you have your Bible open there and you just look at uh, Isaiah 57, um, you know, my Bible has subtitles, and right before chapter 57, it says Israel's futile idolatry. And uh, the first verses of that chapter are basically talking to the people who are not worshiping God. And, uh, and Isaiah has some, some, some very clear things to say to them. He's speaking on behalf of God. When you get to verse 11, verse 11 says, it's God saying, I took care of you. And you didn't care that I took care of you. He says that yeah, I held my peace. His point there is that I, I, have, I have poured out my grace upon you as a nation and you've not cared about that. At all. In verse 12, he basically says, There's a day coming where I'm going to pull the covers off of all of this. I'm going, I'm going to reveal. I'm, I'm going to show everything for, for what it is. In verse 12, he says, I will declare your righteousness in your deeds, but they will not profit you. I'm going to pull the covers off. I'm going to reveal your resume. I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you to the world. I'm going to show you the real story of you. God is going to declare the reality of the people's righteousness. And the answer is they don't have any. They don't have any righteousness. Righteousness has a moral sense in which if you're a righteous person, you're a person who, who does right things. But it also has a relational sense in which you are right in your relationship. And God says there's a day coming where I'm going to reveal that you don't have either. You, you, you don't have, you don't have a, a moral integrity and you're not in right relationship with your creator. I'm going to show you for who you are, and it's not going to profit you. It's not going to work out. Your resume is not what you think it is. Um, and so it, it's a sad day, and the people are going to cry out. And so the Lord says, okay, you're crying out. In verse 13, why don't you turn to the idols that you've been worshiping? You haven't put your hope in me. You've put your hope in these other things. Uh, you're, 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 you're crying out. Why don't you cry out to your idols? And obviously the point is 
that that won't work. Crying out to false idols won't work because they're false. They, they, they can't actually hold up. In, in verse 13, he says, they're actually quickly, they are blown away. And they're shown to be incapable of rescue. But those who take refuge in the Lord, he says, those will be saved. They will be rescued. And, and this language is inferring that God will fulfill all of his promises to those who trust him. He's going to keep every one of his promises. And so Isaiah, as he is sharing this really sobering news with the people of Israel, he's saying those who reject God, what, look, that what you're putting your hope in will never be able to carry you on that last day. But those who put their hope in God, that, that, that will come through. God, God is going to keep all of his promises. Well, that brings us up to verse 14 in the text that we have uh, for today. So verses 14 through 18, we're, we're going to see some activity. And I, I want you to see the amount of, of activity. In, in response to this, these verses, verses 11 through 13, the Lord says that there's a lot of work to be done. There, there's there's some, some challenges, and there's some work to be done. And, and Isaiah points to three activities. And, and here are the activities that he reveals. Preparing. In verse 14, uh, he says, build up, build up, remove every obstruction. This is an invitation to come to God, and that the way to come to God, it's going to be wide open. There's going to be no obstructions, no obstacles in coming to God. From God's perspective, his activity is going to result in no obstacles. The road is wide open. The invitation is wide open to the people. Come, just come. I have made the way as flat as possible. I have made the road as open as possible. All the people will have to do is come. And if you don't believe me, he goes on to say that this one, this, this, this God of heaven, who is indeed high and lifted up, also dwells with the humble. Do you notice that? In verse 15, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. So all of this language that, that is, is recognizing the greatness and the grandness, the glory, the power, all, all of that about who God is. Then it says, this is what that one has to say. I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. So the one who is way, way up there, who is, you know, we, 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 don't, we do not, way above our pay grade, way, way above us. He dwells in the high and holy. He also dwells with the humble. He also dwells with the lowly. You see, if you went back to the beginning of Isaiah, back in Isaiah chapter 6, it's kind of a, a famous passage uh, in the book of Isaiah. And when Isaiah sees this one who is high and lifted up, this one who is so holy, he sees him in his holy place. And you know what Isaiah says? Whoa, I don't belong here. I am undone. I see the holiness of God. I see the grandness of God. And I shouldn't be here. I don't qualify to be in the room. He is so holy and he is so grand and I am not. He says, whoa, I'm a man of unclean lips. I don't belong in this room with that kind of glory, with that kind of perfection, with that kind of goodness. But now, now he is realizing that this high and lifted up one dwells not only in his high and holy place, but also with the humble, with the contrary and the lowly. 
The Lord of heaven is about the work of reviving the humble. One of my favorite phrases is, all you need is need, but most people don't have it. Isaiah looks in chapter 6 and says, if I'm honest about his holiness, I can't stand in there. It'll consume me. I I should dissolve. It's above my pay grade. But now there's this realization that the high and lifted one, the holy one, has come down. And he dwells with the humble. God has made the road wide open. The invitation is wide open. Here he is with the lowly, with the humble. He's accessible. He's come down. And so he says, get ready. We're going to remove every obstruction. Build up, build up. Secondly, he's addressing sin. In verse 16, God says, I will not contend forever. God promises he's he's not always going to contend. And what that means is he's not going to always oppose or always resist. He says he's not going to always be angry. And maybe these words, when you talk about God, maybe these words make you very, very uncomfortable with a God who opposes or resists or contends or gets angry. But what Isaiah is telling us is this. God is well aware of the state of humanity. And he is reporting through his prophet Isaiah that he's not going to wait too long because he actually says humanity is frail. And in verse 16, he says, I won't contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. He's like, humanity couldn't handle it. I, 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 I won't keep this up forever because you, you would fall apart. And I, I'm well aware of that. This won't go on forever. But there is a real problem. And God is, is angry about it. In, in verse 17, he tells us that because of the people's sin, their unjust gain, that God punished them. But what came of that punishment? Well, verse 17 says they didn't stop. So there's wickedness going on. There's rebellion against God going on. God takes action against the rebellion of humanity, of the people of Israel, and they did not stop. You know, anger sometimes gets a a bad rap. But the Bible has a phrase. it's, It's found in the New Testament. And it actually says, be angry and sin not. And part of what that's helping us understand is that there is something called righteous anger. Now, I'm not very good at righteous anger. I'm just good at sinful anger. Because the line between righteous anger and sinful anger is so razor thin. Uh, If you've tried parenting at all, you, you, you know how you can start off with really legitimate righteous anger and how quickly that anger can go from being righteous anger to being sinful anger. The God of heaven never has sinful anger. Now, it says that he, he did something to get their attention. There was rebellion, sin going on, unjust gain. And it says that God punished them. It says that he was angry. Well, we don't know exactly what God did to get their attention. But whatever it was, would you be willing to consider the possibility that his anger stayed righteous? That in all of his engagements with his people, he was rightly angry about sin, 
Don't we want a God who gets angry about sin? That he wants to make the world right? So often my sin hurts other people. Don't you want a God who makes the world right? Don't you want a God who cares about injustice? Don't you want a God who cares about sin? And isn't it amazing? If that God can care that much about sin and keep his righteousness or keep his anger righteous the whole time? It's pretty incredible. And Isaiah says that's exactly what he's doing. So in the face of all this, there's this uh, preparing, there's this, this building, this contending, uh, the, the God's anger, God's correction. In, in the face of all that, the nation of Israel keeps on going in their rebellion. They keep on going in their rejection of God. They won't stop. But guess what? God doesn't stop either. Look at verse 18. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. And so along with this other activity, one of the activities is, is healing. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. Do you see that God does not say, I've seen his ways, and because of his good heart, I will heal him. No, that is not what God says at all. God's basically saying, in spite of you, I will heal you. I've seen exactly what you've done, and I'll heal you. I've seen the rebellion, and I'm willing to heal you. In spite of you, I'm willing to heal you. I've seen your ways, but. Isn't that good news? The God of heaven says, I see it. <laughs> I know you better than you know you. I, I see everything you do. I've seen every action. I've also seen the thoughts of your heart. I've seen your motivations clearer than you've seen your motivations. I know exactly what you're doing. I know exactly what the people of Israel are doing. But I will still heal them. I will lead them. And I'll restore comfort to them. Then he actually says, creating the fruit of the lips. What's that mean? The Bible uses this language a few different times. But what it's saying is that God's activity here is going to result in the praise of the people. That the fruit of their lips, that with their mouths, they are going to praise the God of heaven. That they're going to, to look at the situation <clears throat> and they're going to be able to put the pieces together. And they're going to realize, oh, whoa, look at our resume. Oh, whoa, God, God revealed our righteousness and we didn't have any. Oh, whoa, like we, we rebelled against the God of heaven and he still was willing to heal us. The fruit of the lips. Now this praise, as you can tell by just living a day on this earth, this praise isn't fully happening yet. This earth is not packed full of the praise of the God of heaven. Not yet. But when God's putting it right project is done, his people will praise him. And the Bible says the earth's going to be filled with it from, from coast to coast. The, 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 the whole thing is going to be packed full of the praise of the God of heaven. So just as the people wouldn't quit in their rebellion, the God of heaven doesn't quit in his grace. He says, I see it. I know how bad it is. I know how bad it is worse than you. I, I, I know more about it than you know. And yet I'll heal them. 
Well, the promise of peace. All that activity, the preparing, the addressing of sin, all of it. What's the result of it? Well, his people will praise him, yes, but why? Why will they praise him? Well, what Isaiah points to is because peace has come. Look, look at verse 19. Creating the fruit, uh, the fruit of the lips, peace, peace, to the far and to the near, says the Lord. Peace, peace, to the far and to the near. It's saying that it's going to be peace everywhere. That's the, that's the point of that phrase, right? Near and far. If it's close, peace is there. If it's far away, peace is there. There aren't any other options. <laughs> it's peace everywhere. Peace from here to there. Peace from right beside you to as far as you can get away from you. It's peace everywhere. It's peace in all of the relationships of the world. Human to human. Human to God. Creation to human. Peace everywhere. Peace from, from school shootings and peace from tornadoes that rip through uh, cities and peace from global pandemics and peace from governments that mistreat their people. Peace far and near. Peace everywhere. God says, I will provide peace. That word peace is the, is the word shalom. And the word shalom it's rightly translated peace, but it just, it just means so much more than what we think of when we think of the word peace. It just means absolute goodness. Everything is right. All is well. It doesn't mean that you got home and your house is quiet for 15 minutes and you get a moment of peace. It is so much better than that. Like, if, you know, maybe you can relate to that and 15 minutes of quiet at your house might, might be like a miracle. But, but it's so much better. So much better than that. It's everything made right. And God says, I'm going to provide that kind of peace for those who are lowly and contrite. But for the proud, he says, there's not going to be any peace at all. There's not going to be peace for the proud. In verse 20, it says that the wicked, he's talking about the opposite of the lowly and contrite. And he's, when he says the wicked here, he or the arrogant, he's not just talking like some caricature of the arrogant person that you might see in a movie. You know, it's, it's the holidays, and, and maybe you've seen National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. You know, and they've got really arrogant, kind of cocky neighbors. Maybe you remember these people. And it's like everything, they're persnickety about everything, and they, like, they, you know, they kind of think that they're better than everybody else. Sometimes like, that's what we think of when we think of arrogant. That's not what the Bible's talking about when the Bible's talking about arrogant. I mean, that person might be arrogant. But what the Bible's talking about with arrogance is, is, is deeper than that. It's not just some caricature. No, what Isaiah's talking about is that anyone who won't come to the Lord is in that category. Anyone who won't submit themselves to the Lord is in that category. That's a sobering picture. Now, how does this peace show up? Is God just going to flip a peace switch? No. P peace will come, but we, it will only come because of the very activity that we just read about. In verses 14 through 18, this removing of obstacles, this addressing of sin, this healing of the world, that, that's how peace is going to come. 
This activity is actually going to, 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 to happen. These things are actually going to happen. You see, about 600 years later, there's a, there's a, a man named John the Baptist, and, and he's going to show up. And he's going to be really eccentric. And he's going to roam the wilderness. And I mean, he, he's an odd duck. He, he wears odd clothes. He eats odd food. But he has a message. And he has a job. And he is to announce to all people, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. What's John the Baptist talking about? He's saying that Jesus has arrived. John's job was to announce that Jesus, the Messiah, the rescuer, that he has shown up. And how does John the Baptist do that? By saying exactly what Isaiah 57, 14 is talking about. He's quoting these very ideas. Jesus has shown up. And God went even further than we could have imagined. He came and dwelled among us. Verse 15, God, the high and lifted up God, he also dwells with the lowly. And we find out that this is not just figurative. It's not just spiritual. It's physical. He dwells with the lowly here in a human body on the dirt of the earth as a human being. The name Emmanuel means God with us. It's not just figurative. It's not just spiritual. It's physical. It's material. God came here as a human. And in verse 17, we see something even more stunning. And verse 17 says that God saw the sin of his people and he struck them and he could not look upon their sin, but they continued in the rebellion anyway. Do you, do you see the connections here? When Jesus comes, God does something shocking. Instead of striking those in rebellion, God strikes his own son. And when he does, God turns his face away because he could not look upon sin. And in that moment on the cross, his son was forsaken because his son was bearing all the sin of the world. You see, the problem of sin, that problem that so desperately needs to be resolved, was resolved, but not by the guilty parties. No, instead, by the one innocent human, Jesus Christ. And what's the result of Jesus' work on the cross? Well, it's that healing is available, that peace is available to those who will come to God in Christ. You say, well, how does that result in peace? Why does that result in peace? Think about a few things. If you're going through a trial, what's a, what's a question that you often find yourself asking? Is God punishing me? Am I going through this because God is punishing me? Well, do you know what the cross of Jesus says? No. No, you're not going through this because God is punishing you. Jesus already took the punishment. Maybe you want to ask, does God love me? If, if I'm facing this kind of a hardship, if I'm facing this kind of a trial, if this kind of a tragedy has come upon me, does God really love me? Do you know what the cross of Jesus says? That the answer to that question is absolutely yes. Look at what he did for you. 
Sometimes you ask, am I going to make it? This feels like too much. Well, the cross of Jesus offers eternal life. Eternal life. If you know that you are not being punished, if you know that you are already loved, if you know that your life is safe in Christ, it it offers you unspeakable peace. You see, the cross answers the biggest questions with the best of answers. And it's a life of, I mean, there's so many things to still learn, so many things to still do. But this reality changes how you face all of that. Coming to God in Christ does not change anything about your need to keep learning, your need to keep growing, your need to be the hands of feet of Jesus in the world. It doesn't change anything about that, but it totally changes how. There is no promise here of a cakewalk. There's no promise of an easy life. But it can change how you navigate this life. Have you ever watched, I've been watching a, a sporting event, like a football game or something, and the commentators just start talking about one of the teams, and they're like, they're, they're just so relaxed out there. They're, they're playing loose. They're playing free. They're playing like they have nothing to lose. Usually a commentator, and I watch a lot of sports, usually a commentator means that in a really positive way. That team's playing loose. That team's playing free. That team's playing like they have nothing to lose. Do you, do you know that that's what's offered to you in Christ? Is that you can actually go through life like that? That, that there can be a, a looseness and a freeness? That you can actually go through this life recognizing that you don't have a thing to lose? That the most important thing in all your life is so secure? And it doesn't mean that you disengage. It means that you get to engage with greater confidence and greater freedom. You can actually be part of, 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 of Jesus' putting it right project. But the message of Isaiah, which aligns with the message of the Bible, is that this can only be found in Christ. I don't know if you're using an Advent devotional uh, over these weeks, but I'm using, it's on our book wall out there, but it's called Fixated, written by a guy named Tim Chester. And uh, it's working through uh, the, the book of uh, Hebrews. And a couple days ago, he was talking about uh, a passage from, from Hebrews. And this is, this is what he said. He said, here's the evidence in regard to humanity and their rebellion against God. We have picked a fight that we cannot win. How about an understatement? Huh? <laughs> we have picked a fight that we cannot win. But he goes on to say this. But notice that when Jesus shows up on the earth, the angels, they don't sing about the beginning of a war. They sing about the end of the war. So yeah, we've picked a fight that we cannot win. We are in a war that we cannot win. But when Jesus shows up, the angels show up, and they start singing, and they start singing about the war coming to an end. And you hear it in Luke chapter 2, verses uh, 10 through 14. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, 
glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. That's the, the, when Jesus shows up on the earth, the angels immediately say, uh-oh, this is it. It's coming to the end. It's coming to a close. The battle is wrapping up. Humanity didn't have a chance, but Jesus will. He will win. Okay? But what if you don't come to Jesus? Man, this is sobering. Isaiah says there's, there's no real peace at all. When, when the storms of life blow, he says in verse 20 and 21, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its water toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace. When the storms blow the dirt and muck, they get tossed all over the place. There, there's no legitimate answer for it. There's no true peace to be found. Now, that's not saying at all that there couldn't be periods of your life where it seems peaceful. But do you see, the Bible is saying that peace comes from the person of Jesus and what he did here. And this peace then becomes this reality where it's above your circumstances and it's below your circumstances. It, 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 per, it pervades everything that goes on around you, everything that happens to you. In Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says that the peace of God dwells in our hearts in such a way that, that, that the circumstances of life, they, they, they don't have any effect on that peace. That the invitation for the people of God is to remember this grand story, this confidence that they have that they're already accepted, that they're already loved, that they've already been given eternal life, this invitation to, to go through life loose and free, to play as if you have nothing to lose because you can't lose anything, that peace comes from relationship with Christ. And if you're not in a right relationship with Christ, then any other peace, it, 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 it can't hold. Paul is not saying that when he goes through his trials, he doesn't feel anything. He just means that he's not swept away by his trials. That his roots are in the rock of Jesus, not in the sand or anything else. Remember in, in earlier in chapter 57 here, Isaiah 57, when, when the people are crying out and God says, okay, what, what about your idols? What about the, where you've put your hope? Why don't, you, why don't you turn to them? And the answer is, they, they can't get it done. They won't hold on the last day. They can't give what they're promising. See, the message of Isaiah 57 is this. In Christ, the way has been made. The obstacles have been removed. But that there is only one path that leads to life. That, that path is so wide open. But the message of the Bible is that it is the only way. For, for the people of Judah, this should have been such joyful news. What about you? Uh, a pastor named Ray Ortland put it this way. Where is God? He says, God is in two places. He dwells in the high and holy place where we can't go. And he dwells among the lowly and the contrite where we can go. So the way to find God is obvious. Humble yourself and he'll find you. 
You see the situation? Your righteousness is not what you think it is. Your resume is not what you think it is. No matter what kind of horizontal evaluations you've got going on, on the day when God pulls the covers off, your resume is not going to be what you think it is. And your righteousness is not going to be what you think it is. And God is going to say this. He says this to us right now. Come, I have made the path wide open. I've already provided the rescue. One who took all your sin. All you have to do is come. So look, let me, let me close with this. If you thought you could get to God, this tells you you don't have a chance apart from Christ. And if you thought you could never get to God, if you look in the mirror and you're like, I am such a train wreck, the stuff I've done, the way that I've lived, there is no way, there is no way that I could get to God. And isn't this incredible news? He dwells with the lowly. All you need is need. All the exhaustion of trying to work for it, trying to earn it, trying to deserve it. God says, if you come through Christ, there's peace for you. Jesus said those words himself in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you are worn out, and I'll give you peace. How do you get it? Humble yourself, and he'll find you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this text. Hard words, heavy realities, and yet an incredible invitation to anyone who will hear. The path has been made flat. The road is wide open. The invitation is wide open. You, the God of heaven, high and holy, took on human flesh and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, God with us, in order to bring peace, the peace that we would never be able to find apart from that. God, we recognize that this life throws all kinds of curveballs. There's all kinds of challenges and things we're still trying to figure out. But we thank you that the person and work of Jesus answers the biggest of life's questions with the best of answers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.